and tonight we're reading from verse 31 to 34. If you were with us last time, we saw in verses 28 to 30, Paul showing us the basis of Christian assurance. This week, he goes on from the basis of Christian assurance to basically just boasting in Christian assurance. He takes up that kind of schoolboy kind of motif of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Um, Sarah's uh, work in Gracemount uh, means that she works with some of the kind of roughest and most notorious families in that scheme. And one of the families in particular is feared above all the rest. Um, and their youngest daughter is tiny. She's a really vulnerable little girl if you were just to look at her. But because of who her big brothers are, because of who her dad is, she's totally untouchable. So Sarah's walking down the street with this little girl one day. The little girl's on Sarah's shoulders. And this group of pretty scary-looking blokes start walking towards them. And this little girl on Sarah's shoulders starts kind of shouting abuse at these young men. You can imagine Sarah, you can Sarah going, shut up. <laughs> kind of get her heads kicked in. But these big burly blokes would not touch this little girl. Why not? Because of who her big brothers are. Because of who her dad is. Come and have a go. And Paul in this section of Romans is saying, Do you know, as a Christian, when you understand who your dad is, there can be this boasting in the assurance that you have in Christ Jesus. So let's read uh, Romans 8. We'll start at verse 28 and we'll read through to verse 34. And we know, Paul says, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You notice all these questions that Paul is throwing out into the air. John Stott, a commentator on these verses, writes, he takes these questions, he hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. We'll look at the next one next week if you glance at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tonight I just want us to look at two of these questions Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then we'll turn our our gaze to the second question in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? So firstly then, uh, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you were to ask the question, who is against us as Christians? The answer would actually come back, well, quite a lot of people. Uh, Christians rack up quite a lot of enemies in church history. They've been summarized under three headings. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, 
finds Christianity offensive, and so it sets itself not only against God, but its people. Our own sinful natures, the flesh, are also set against God. We saw that earlier in Romans, that our nature's desires are in conflict with the desires of God's Spirit. And then thirdly, the devil. As Satan is real, he is against God and has been from the beginning, and therefore he is against God's people. Who is against us? Loads of people. Who would kidnap a bunch of young Christian girls? Who would kick a Christian charity out of a Christian out of a council community centre for talking about Jesus? Who would call for the head of a chaplain of a football team, calling him the head of the Christian version of the Taliban? Christians rack up enemies. People are against us. But Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, if we take our enemies, we must weigh them against this reality. God is for us. There's a great Old Testament principle here. One plus God equals the majority. Or you could say, the minority plus God equals the majority. Now, we could look at a whole bunch of stories. Let's take a couple. Uh, Numbers 13 and Joshua and Caleb. You may not know the story. What happens is God has promised a land to his people, but it's currently inhabited by another nation. And so they send in 12 spies. And they look at the land, they come back, and they report to their own people. Now, 10 of those spies say, do you know what? Great land, great fruit, but great enemies. You know, they're like giants, and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. But two spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and they say this in Numbers 13. Do you know what? Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us, for us. Do not be afraid of them. Grasshoppers plus God equals the majority. Grasshoppers plus God makes giants into grasshoppers. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, let's take another story. 2 Kings 6. Elisha is God's prophet and he has a servant. And they go to bed one night and they wake up and the next morning their camp is surrounded by a vast army. We read in 2 Kings 6, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Now how does the man of God's servant feel? He's terrified. But what does God's prophet Elisha say? He says, don't be afraid those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So Elisha prays for his servants. And he prays that God would give him eyes to see. And as the servant looks out, he sees a spiritual army surrounding this enemy army. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The minority plus God equals the majority. God is for us, who can be against us? Now you may say, but hang on, that's easy to say if, if you've just defeated an army, if your enemy is lying dead on a battlefield before you. But is God for me if 200 of my friends have just been kidnapped? Is God for me if I've just had this horrendous diagnosis? Is God for me in this dark season of life. I get it on the battlefield if he's won, 
but is he for me? You ever felt that? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 32. How do we know if God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How do you know if God is for you? Well, the Apostle Paul says this, look at the cross. The cross is the greatest demonstration that God is for his people. I can prove to you that God is for you by the fact that he has given his son for you. He did not spare him. The greatest demonstration that God is for you is seen in the fact that he would send his one and only son to die on a cross. That although you deserve to suffer as one of God's enemies, he would not spare his son. That is, every punishment you deserved as an enemy is put upon his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Is God for me? I look at the cross and say, yes. He did not spare his own son. A great quote. I'm going to quote three times from a guy called Octavius Winslow tonight. I was gutted when the Garvey baby wasn't called Octavius. But um, he is sublime on this section of Romans 8. He says this, Who gave up Jesus to the cross? Not Judas for money. Not the Jews for envy. Not Pilate for fear. But God for love. The cross was not a a horrible accident. It was the divine demonstration that God is for us. Maybe you're tempted tonight to interpret your own afflictions as signals of God's wrath. Maybe to interpret your own ongoing sins as confirmation of condemnation. Maybe your season of current darkness as a token of God's desertion. What would the Apostle Paul say? Look at the cross. He has not deserted you. He is not condemning you. He is not angry with you. But he is for you. And you know what? He may not choose to explain the reasons for our suffering. But he will tell us why we are not suffering. It is not because he doesn't care. It is not because he isn't for us. He may not choose to furnish us with an explanation, but he will expressly choose to show that he is for us. Look at the cross. I have not spared my one and only son. I wonder too if you ask the question, how how do I know if I'll keep going in the Christian life? You ever contemplate that? All these enemies... My own flesh seems to be against me. How do I know if I'll keep going? Well, again, look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's reasoning, his logic is really clear. If he is giving us, if he has given us the most costly thing, he will not spare every other thing. How do you know if you'll keep going? Look at the cross. The cross is the guarantee of the ongoing, sustaining care of God. It is the down payment, the pledge 
of God being for us right up until the very end. Is he for me? Will I keep going? Look at the cross. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He will not fail to bring to fruition the end that was purposed in the cross. Look at the cross. Now there's an important word in this section. If. If God is for us. Now the Christian can say, I know he is because I look at the cross. But that little word makes us think of the opposite. What if God were against me? What if the God of this universe was against me? I remember as a little P6 year old um, turning up to a football game at Comiston Primary School. Uh, so I was at Craig Locker. We turned up on a Saturday morning and we we went out to kind of warm up and that kind of thing and we saw this guy on the opposition team his name was Yosef Bajoui which is an intimidating name I actually saw him this week that's what reminded me he, P6 he was 6 foot 6 now we were this height and worse he was in goals just a night you think he's against us we're all cowering you know we're walking back into the changing room game done every shot no, every goal kick was pretty much a shot on target for this guy it's against us. It's a terrifying thing when you have a giant against you. What if the giant who is against you is God himself? You know, time and time again in the Old Testament, he expressly says to people, I am against you. Jeremiah 50 verse 1, I am against you, O arrogant one. Ezekiel 29 verse 3, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Maybe you're here tonight investigating Christianity this is all kind of new to you and I think often our assumption is okay if there is a God he must be at least favorably disposed towards me you know he must at least want me on his team it ought to terrify us to think that actually in our natural state he is against us I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans 5 an earlier chapter where it expressly says that you know what we are God's enemies I am against you says the Lord God Almighty in Psalm 2 another place worth meditating he sees the nations conspiring against him do you know what God does he laughs he mocks them those who come against him he laughs at because they are like grasshoppers in his eyes I am against you. Now, the amazing message of Christianity is that it was Romans 5, whilst we were God's enemies, that Christ died for us. It's not like a football team where you pick the best guys first, but God saw us when we were his grasshopper-like enemies. And that is when he said, I'm going to send my son for you. Let me ask you the question tonight. Is God for you? put your faith in Christ or is he against you there's a second question that Paul raises in verse 33 that's worthy of our attention not only if God is for us who can be against us but who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen now in this section there's lots of kind of legal terminology Paul brings us by imagination into the courtroom 
This isn't the first time. He's done this in the letter of Romans. In the early chapters, God brought us before his bar of judgment and he showed us, do you know what? You are not righteous. You do not do good. Your tongues lie. Your mouth curses. Your feet have this natural tendency to ruin things. Your eyes do not fear God and therefore you are condemned. Ask the question, who can bring any charge against me? Do you know what the answer comes back in Romans? God. He can bring a charge against us. It's his world. It's his court. He is the judge. We are guilty. And therefore we are condemned. But look at these five words in verse 33. It is God who justifies. The very God against whom we have sinned becomes the one who justifies us. Romans will put it brashly. He justifies the ungodly. Now justified means more than just to forgive. It means more than just to pardon. It means God's declaration that you are now righteous and just. There's deep mystery here. How can God justify the ungodly? It is seen again in the cross of Jesus. We're on the cross in that moment. All of my unrighteousness, all my reasons for being condemned before God are landed upon Christ. And all of his righteousness, his perfect record of God's law lands upon me so that he is condemned that I might be justified and so we can say who is he that condemns if God is the one whom we, who justifies us and his is the tribunal at which we must stand then there can be no room for accusation when he justifies It's good news that Satan doesn't sit on the judgment throne of this world. It's great news that our peer groups are not the ones who sit on the judgment seat of this world. It is good news that my conscience doesn't sit on the judgment seat of this world. Because all these things shout, you're condemned. You don't live up to God's standards. But it is God who justifies. And if he justifies those he has chosen, then they will never be condemned. It is God who justifies. We read Zechariah 3 earlier on. A great illustration of this. So Joshua, the high priest, stands there and he's got the angel on one side, but Satan on another. And we read in uh, Zechariah 3, Satan was standing at his right-hand side to accuse him. Who is he that condemns? Satan. What does God do? Take off his filthy garments, his sin-stained garments. Take them off. I will put rich garments on you. And so with his sin-stained garments removed and this rich garment placed on him, what can Satan say? Nothing. Who is he that condemns? Why? It is God who justifies. Those he chooses, he justifies, and they will never be condemned can you be confident on the day of judgment a day that is coming yes how it is God who justifies second quote from this dude Octavius 
standing beneath the shadow of the cross, the weakest saint can confront the deadliest foe. And every accusation alleged and every sentence of condemnation uttered, he can make by pointing to him that died. Every accusation, I point to the cross of Christ. It is God who justifies. Now it would be enough to stop there, but there's more. Because it is not only in the cross of Christ, God not sparing his own son. It's not only in God justifying, but in verse 34, there is more. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. God is for you. It is God who justifies and it is Jesus who intercedes. We must not just think of the work of Christ as his work on the cross. There's more than that. And Paul's argument here is to say that since Jesus not only died but rose, and since he not only rose but ascended, and since he not only ascended but now intercedes, he lives to assure his people of the security that they have. Now I'm out on a limb here, but I think what Paul is doing, remember two weeks ago as we looked at this golden chain, foreknowledge, predestined, called, uh, justified, glorified. The point was, God has built this chain that cannot be broken. I wonder if this little section is almost like a second golden chain. Jesus died. All those for whom he died, he rose for. All those for whom he rose for, he uh, ascended to the right hand of God for. All those whom he ascended for, he intercedes for. Because he is doing these things for his people. Why? to secure for them the work that he has done on the cross. Jesus died, we've seen this, for us. But he also rose so that the Christian can plant their foot on the solid ground of an empty tomb with a reasoned faith and say, Jesus lives to assure me of glory. He lives to assure the security of his people. Uh, Sarah and I earlier on were talking about Grey Forest Bobby. There was a similar story in the news this week. Um, so Bobby, Bobby was a dog, right? Yeah. What was the guy's name? No one knows? Isn't that a shame? John. Jock. Jock. So Jock dies, and Bobby's sad. So Jock gets buried, and what does Bobby do? Well, every night he goes to the grave. Now, there's something lovely about that story. There's also something pretty tragic. Because the one who fed Bobby is gone. The one who cared for Bobby is gone. The one who loved Bobby has gone. The one who put a roof over Bobby's head is gone. It's a nice story. It's a tragic story for Bobby. The Christian's hope is not just that we lie beside the... the, the Um, lived in tomb of a dead master that is not the hope of a Christian it's better than that it's not that we're coming to the place hoping that a dead guy would still feed us and care for us and love us he's alive which means what? he can continue to love us continue to feed us continue to care for us continue to shelter us he is alive to assure the security of of his people it is a story better than Bobby but he not only rose 
he ascended. He rose, but he also is raised to life and is at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God is the place of all authority and all power. So Jesus is not only alive to assure the security of his people, he is powerful to assure the security of his people. It's not the weakness of a cross, it's the power of a right arm. Some of you will know the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's a martyr for the sake of the Christian faith. And as Stephen is having his head pounded with stone and his skull is being crushed and his senses are being dulled, what does he see? He doesn't see a vision of Jesus on the cross, but he sees a vision of Jesus where? At the right hand of God. Why? Stephen, Jesus is powerful to bring you even through this suffering to the place of eternal glory. Stephen, no one can pluck you out of my powerful right hand. He not only died, he not only rose, but he is ascended to the place of power. But again, there's more. He is alive to assure the security of his people, powerful to assure their security, but also he is praying for the security of his people. He is interceding for us. You ever stop to wonder what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for us. He's praying for the security of his people. There is an intimacy and a constancy in the preoccupation of Jesus for his people. Amazing. Uh, you, again, another story from the Gospels. You remember Peter in Luke chapter 22? Jesus looks at Peter and says, Do you know what? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But what? I have prayed for you. And though he falls, he will not fall forever. But he will be restored. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I've prayed for you. Okay, let's go to Octavius Winslow again. Tried and tempted believer. Jesus maketh intercession for you. Your case is not unknown to him. Your sorrow is not hidden from him. Your name is on his heart. Your burden is on his shoulder. And because he not only has prayed for you, but prays for you now, your faith shall not fail. Your great accuser may stand at your right hand to condemn you, but your great advocate stands at the right hand of God to plead for you. And greater is he that is for you than all those who are against you. He is interceding for you to bring you safe home. We must never divorce the work of Christ on the cross in his sacrifice from the work of Christ at the right hand of God as high priest. And they are two sides of the same coin. All those for whom he dies, he intercedes. Why? To be the complete saviour. If you've got a Bible open, uh, come with me to Hebrews 7, at page 1205. I love this verse. It's worth seeing. 1205. Hebrews 7, verse 23. Here we see the inseparability between his death and his intercession. Now, Hebrews 7, 23. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. That is to say, you know, Jock dies. He's prevented from doing his work. But because Jesus 
lives forever. That is, he not only died but rose. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save what? Completely. Those who, God, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because he not only dies, but he is now interceding for us. He can save us completely. He will bring us all the way home. Uh, there's a great old hymn. It's probably the kind of hymn that as young people we would mock these days. But some of you remember. Do you remember the song? All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? You can join in if you want. Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er before me Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er before me Jesus doeth all things well. All the way. All the way. Aren't you tempted when you give someone a lift home just to cut the route a little bit shorter for you, just to drop them? I'll just drop you at the corner and you can walk the rest of the way. Jesus doesn't do that. Doesn't just save us at the cross and then say, I'll see you in heaven. You'll find your own way. All the way, my Savior leads me. He not only dies, but he rises. He not only rises, he ascends. He not only ascends, but he intercedes to bring you all